hello and welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium and the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. My name is David Naff. I'm the Associate Director of Merck and the host of this episode. Uh, today's conversation is part of a special series in connection with the theme of our upcoming Merck conference, The Promise of Public Education, Connecting Research, Policy, and Practice in a New Era. So what do we mean by the promise of public education in a new era? Public schools have been designed to meet a range of ambitious goals critical to the health and stability of our country. They promise opportunities for social mobility, to develop skills that lead to fulfilling vocation and economic opportunities, and to instill dispositions and critical thinking skills essential for democratic citizenship. Although elements of these foundational principles may endure, recent events have shed light on how the promise has, in many cases, been unfulfilled, particularly for specific student populations. Over the past year and a half, we have seen the COVID-19 pandemic disrupt nearly every aspect of public schools, forcing educators and students to rapidly adapt to a new and uncertain environment. At the same time, international social movements promoting racial justice have called upon school systems to re-examine policies and practices in pursuit of greater equity for their students and their community. Whatever the future may bring, public education finds itself at an inflection point where we can reimagine its purposes and possibilities. For each episode in this series, we will explore a fundamental element of public education, discuss how it has been impacted by the events of the past year and a half, and share our vision for what it could be moving forward. In this episode, we are discussing digital equity in a new era and have invited local experts who can best speak to where we might go from here. Let me introduce everyone to you now. We have John Becker. Uh, He's an associate professor in the Department of Educational Leadership in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, Dr. Becker's teaching and scholarly endeavors occur at the intersection of educational technology, policy, law, and leadership. Uh, Dr. Becker recently served a five-year stint as VCU's Director of Learning Innovation, where he worked with a team to develop the Academic Learning Transformation Lab, or Alt Lab, as a center for pedagogical innovation for the university. Uh, Matt Karatachea is the Coordinator of Technology Integration and Innovation for Goochland County Public Schools and a doctoral candidate in the Curriculum, Culture, and Change program in the VCU School of Education. Andrew Harris is the Merck Research and Evaluation Assistant and has worked with multilingual elementary students in Alexandria City Public Schools and Richmond Public Schools. Um, And then finally, we have Joy Washington. Joy is a school librarian at Cool Spring Primary School in King William County Public Schools. Uh, She is also a doctoral candidate in the Curriculum, Culture, and Change program in the VCU School of Education. She is the lead author on a recent Merck report on digital equity through the lens of use and outcomes that we're going to be talking about during our episode today. Um, There's two corresponding reports that sort of align with our conversation today that focus on digital equity, the lens of access, and then the second one focuses it on the lens of use and outcomes. So we're going to be talking about those reports. Um, those are available on the Merck website for download. We've been working on this project for a little more than a year, so it's it's great to finally be able to, to see it out there because uh, with remote learning, this is digital equity is just a, a really critical topic. Um, and we're grateful to have everybody here. So starting with this first question, this is for everybody. Enjoy, you can kick us off. What comes to mind when you hear the term digital equity and how has this changed for you over the past year and a half? Um, much of the literature on the topic of digital equity is in the social science sciences and focuses on issues of access and use based on sociocultural factors as they relate to the general population. Um, However, for me, my focus is more on the educational implications of digital equity. So my thoughts around digital equity focus on how teachers, students, and families are able to access and utilize technology to impact learning. Uh, Living and working in a rural area the issues around access to high speed are well known to me. 
Uh, when you live in an area where it doesn't matter how much you're willing to pay, access is sometimes unattainable. That's something we really need to think about as we move further into the age of digital learning. Um, the thing that has changed for me in the last year is not in my thinking really, but in the thinking of others. I think the pandemic has really brought to the forefront just how important it is to ensure access for our students. And I hope that's gonna mean some big changes across our country. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the difference between rural and urban digital equity is a really important focus of the conversation that I hope we'll, we'll be able to unpack a little bit today too. Andrew, how about you? How do you think about this? Sure. You know, for me, it's about what's the difference between like being a digital native, which we would say that pretty much any student is now is digital native growing up with that technology and who gets to develop the skills to, to use those tools in an academic and professional context. So for me, digital equity means not just I have a cell phone plan with data so I can look at YouTube videos. It means like I have a computer and I can use those tools and have software that helps me learn how to use it as a tool as opposed to something of just a consuming device. So that's kind of what I've been thinking about over the past year is which students are using those tools in productive ways and which students maybe have those tools, but it's still kind of just a consumption device. So where's, how can we kind of flip that paradigm a little bit? Yeah, use is a critical element of digital equity. And a lot of times we think of it just through the lens of access. So that's, that's an important point. John, how about you? So for me, the kind of driver for this these reports was that if you think back to March 2020, the focus for all kinds of understandable reasons was on access, making sure kids had a computing device, making sure they had the access to the internet that they needed just to be able to kind of continue their schooling. And from my perspective, school leaders did incredible work bending over backwards to make sure that happened, getting laptops out to kids, getting wireless devices out to kids where they needed it. And so the, the question was, you know, sort of what's, what's next? There were digital divide issues that go beyond just giving kids laptops and wireless devices. And so when I think of digital equity in education, I try to think sort of more broadly than just having a computer and the internet. And how can we, now that schools and school divisions have somewhat leveled the playing field with respect to access, what, what comes next on the, in the equity realm? Matt, how about you? I guess the good thing about going last is everybody has said some pretty great stuff. So I feel like a combination of what has been said before. Before I was in Goochland, I was in Henrico. And when all the schools had to switch to uh, distance learning, we were like, okay, well, we need to get devices out. And we didn't have as big of a impact on or there wasn't as big of an impact on access to internet for people who just physically couldn't get internet, like Joy was talking about. But when I came to Goochland, you could give people hotspots, but they can't get a self signal. So it's another layer on top of that. So yeah, we, we have a device for every kid pre-K to 12 and they were able to go home with it. But even if we give them a hotspot, a lot of them still weren't able to get on the internet and then access school and having kids having that barrier of not being able to access school was a really really big deal but it was kind of like what what john was saying it was the shift of okay how do we keep school happening and then 
as last year went on, it kind of shifted from how do we make school happen to how do we make this a meaningful experience and how do we take these digital tools that we have to teach through and make it a creative learning experience and use these tools to actually do something productive, kind of like what, what Andrew was saying. And instead of just, you know, consuming, just listening, because we all know what it's like being in a Zoom meeting for an hour and a half or two hours where you just listen. Imagine that for seven hours, you know, that's that's not super fun. So how can teachers kind of shift this, their thinking and how they deliver content or how students engage in content? And then I'm hoping, how do we take those skills that teachers, because there are a lot of teachers that, you know, would email me and call me and they would say, now I get what you were trying to get us to do in our classroom. Now that we have to do it, I get it now. Now I want to now I want to try it when kids come back. So I we do have a lot of momentum and we we have those teachers who saw the benefits of using digital tools for creative and productive uses in terms of kids showing their learning. And that's where where my focus and heart has always been when it comes to digital digital equity. It's you know that difference in use because you might walk into one school or even one classroom and kids might be doing something with, you know, a computer and an iPad or 3D printer or something. But then you walk into the, the next classroom or in another school and they have the same tools, just a different teacher and with a different mindset. And how can we use, you know, professional learning and then our coaches in different school divisions to, or bring these teachers to realize, you know, just because we're back in person, it doesn't mean that this, needs to stop and we can take it even one step further. Right. And Matt's really done a good job of sort of capturing the nuance around remote learning and all the different things that you need to consider in terms of um, uh, just digital access use outcomes. John, can you talk through what our, our framework is for conceptualizing digital equity through these different lenses? Sure. So we, we're we thinking of digital equity in kind of multi-dimensional terms. So you go back to some of the earliest literature on the digital divide in schools or digital equity in education. The focus early on was, was specifically on access and things like we used to kind of count in schools and classrooms, like how many computers per student were there in a, in a school. And that was, that was important. We were, we were sort of building the infrastructure. From there, there was some literature that talked about the second divide, which was around use. So we had this access versus use distinction in the literature on digital equity. And we've added a, a third part to that, which is, which is outcomes. So things like uh, enrollment in computer science courses or uh, you know, jobs in kind of 21st century um, skill areas. So that's the first dimension is this access, use, and outcomes dimension. The second dimension to the framework is around demographics. So things like sex and race and income and geography. And so if you just cross those two dimensions, you get a whole set of interesting issues or, or you know, from my perspective, research questions. You know, do low-income communities have better or worse access to the internet? Uh, or are uh, girls enrolling in computer science classes at the same rates as boys? And that's just looking at the, you know, the two dimensions. We've added kind of a third dimension to the framework, which is around kind of home, school, and community. And so combining all three of those dimensions, you get a whole series of you know, combinations of issues to look at. You know? So it's not just counting computers per student in the school. It's do Black students have access to high-quality computers 
in the school? Do they have access to high quality computers in the home? Are low income communities providing access at the same rate through community organizations like public libraries? So this three-dimensional kind of multi-dimensional framework um, gives us lots of different ways to look at uh, a really big and important issue that is digital equity in education. John, why is it so important within that framework to really start with an understanding of access? So what do we know about digital access and what, what makes this a foundational aspect of the model? Well, you know, at a real simple level, like you can't use the technology unless you have, have it, right? So the, the use part comes and the outcomes come from uh, that baseline of having the technology. You know, it, it, I want to sort of piggyback on, on what Matt said, which is it used to be that we would focus on uh, school districts or school divisions that rolled out these, you know, we called them one-to-one programs. And they were sort of a big deal. Remember, Hen- Henrico was one of the earliest school districts in the country to roll out a huge laptop program where every kid got access to a computer. And that sort of mushroomed where lots of districts were engaging in these laptop initiatives or one-to-one initiatives. And when we did that, typically it was accompanied by lots of professional development, lots of planfulness around how that stuff was going to be used. When the pandemic hit and school districts had to suddenly, you know, use federal and state money to make sure every kid had access, none of that professional development happened. None of that real planning went in. We just made sure everyone could at least have access to a teacher and to some content. And I think that sort of highlights this idea that like, okay, we can make sure everyone has access, but if we're not thinking about use and the sort of outcomes from that use, then we're not really thinking comprehensively enough about digital equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Matt, I know that you've worked for a couple of different school divisions. So thinking specifically about your experiences in Goochland now, which is a largely rural school division. How does this resonate with your current work? I think it's spot on. I, Luckily, my predecessor and everybody who worked to get the one-to-one program off the ground was very successful. So I kind of came in at a good spot. You know, we, and like John said, you can't focus on using the technology or outcomes unless you have it. So when the pandemic hit, Goochland was in a great spot because there were enough devices for everybody to access learning. I love, I, I, I was reliving the, the whole lack of professional development and kind of like scrambling when John was talking. And I totally agree. I feel like, you know, it was this emergency mindset. All right, we need to do this. We need to do this. And then last year we, so I work really closely, I'm like the, the central office support for the instructional technology coaches. And we really focused on, all right, why do we need to use this these tools as something more than just a, a basically a TV for people to, for kids to access their learning? And then how can we make it meaningful? And how can we take this, this, this idea of use and and really focus on that. So we we had professional development structure throughout the, the whole year and it was really focused on what John was saying and how we how we can make sure that these teachers feel supported in using these tools this way. Um, 
And then in a normal year, whatever that is now, the idea of outcomes is hugely important because we always preach this idea of, yeah, we have these kids for 13 years and we have the opportunity to make a huge impact on them. But what they do after they graduate is just as important to us or should be just as important to us as educators. And how can we help to contribute to their success after they leave us? And this has a huge, a huge influence on you know, how I try to influence and work with the, the coaching team and how they work with teachers. One thing that I, I think I might've read it in the, the, the second um, article that you sent, but this idea of taking the, so like Andrew was saying, we have these, these students who are digital natives, you know, they're making amazing content. They are content creators. And some, for some reason, it's tricky for teachers to see, oh, how can we take this passion that they have, these students have, and integrate that into the classroom? So I, I mean, I just feel like there's so many YouTube and TikTok videos that kids make that are amazing. So, you know, let's leverage that. And I think, I think that that idea was also echoed in, in one of the articles, but that's where I, I really see also um, the idea of kind of appreciating where kids and teachers are and how they use technology. And then how can that, you know, catch on kind of like wildfire. So they might see one kid who's just making these amazing TikTok videos or teachers too. And then how do you bring that into the classroom? And then how does that catch on? And how do other kids kind of latch onto that idea and then start using tools, these tools to create? Yeah, it really does seem instinctive for a lot of our students to um, to use these, these devices, but we know that not all of them have access to these devices. Um, Andrew, which student groups do we know are particularly sus- are susceptible to inequitable access to internet and devices for completing their schoolwork? Um, so I kind of looked at this question when I was working with the Merck English Learner Research and Evaluation Team to kind of come up with our piece of these digital equity briefs. Um, and I found this survey, it's, it's the most comprehensive data I could find nationwide. It was from 2016. So there, there has, of course, been some, some change since then. But I think it's a good place to start as far as thinking about gaps that exist. Because although overall numbers might increase, there's likely still you know, a persistent gap in the, in the things we would have seen from a few years ago. So like I said before, the English learning team were interested in, in multilingual households. And in this census-based survey of multilingual households in which, so defined as nobody over 14 is, is proficient yet in English, no member of that household, barely half reported having a laptop or desktop computer at home. And that's compared with 80% of other households had a laptop or desktop. So maybe they had a tablet or a cell phone, but nothing... Um, not the type of device that's really dedicated for work. And it's a similar story when you look at households with annual income less than $25,000, as well as those in which no adult has a formal education beyond high school. There's a pretty big gap as far as what types of computing devices they might already be familiar with at home. Mm -hmm. And also when you break down by racial groups, black and Hispanic respondents were 
significantly less likely to have those tools compared to white and Asian households. Likewise, with internet access, there's a smaller gap, but that survey included mobile data plans as internet access, and those might be metered. So the, you know, students might not have like unlimited access in the same way as homes with traditional internet plans that are, you know, you can use kind of all you can eat type of style. And, you know, I think this was essentially a pre-existing situation that was like a raw inequality um, in terms of having like the means to develop skills and fluency with those tools. And, you know, even five years ago, education was moving towards a digital kind of platform for, for learning. But in the circumstances of pandemic, it has even more serious implications. So the households that maybe don't have those more formal work style computing tools, they're gonna to be one, relying on schools to provide them and they might not have backup equipment. So if the school provided computer fails or if the hotspot doesn't connect, those kids are less likely to have an alternative way to access remote learning. It makes it all the more easy for children in those households to like lose contact with their classes and school mm -hmm. system. Likewise, parents in those households might be less familiar with the technology and might struggle more as the de facto like IT personnel that we've all had to be in the last year. So they, the parents might not be able to assist students as much. And that kind of ties in with what, what John was saying about that dimension of home and community also providing access. And, you know, a parent who's working remotely from home and already has to use Zoom and all that stuff for their job, they're going to be, it's just going to be a quicker fix if their student has, has trouble. Whereas in a household without that kind of dynamic, it might be more difficult. And back to what I was specifically interested in with those multilingual households, they're, they're doing that IT job uh, oftentimes with equipment and manuals that are not in their native language or the, the IT help is you know, insufficient. So there's just an added layer of difficulty. So I think schools have done a good job, especially like I know Richmond provided um, kind of paper handouts with some instructions in Spanish because they have a large Spanish speaking population. Um, so I think schools are aware of this but it, it still is an, an extra hurdle for those multilingual households that uh, typical households might take for granted is trying to access those types of things. Right. So what we're experiencing during the pandemic with digital equity and a lot of times is an extension of existing equity issues that schools were already experiencing. And in addition to yeah. what you were saying, Andrew, I think one of the really fascinating ways of thinking about access with the digital divide is along the rural and urban sort of divide as well. Um, we've done previous podcast episodes about this, but the idea that in more urban communities, it's maybe more of an issue of access to uh, devices and um, you know being able to pay for high-speed internet, even though the, the infrastructure is really established, like you have broadband and pretty high-speed internet in, in urban centers. But in rural communities, like uh, Joy and Matt were saying, even if you provide a hotspot, I mean, if you're using cellular data, it's, it's really hard to actually um, be able to, to do the work that's required to, for online remote learning. So it's really an infrastructure issue that somebody's going to need to go out and actually extend broadband access to some of these more remote rural communities. And all of this has really been amplified 
obviously during the pandemic. And Joy, I know that you not only work in a school where you think about this stuff all the time, but you're pretty well versed in the literature as one of the lead authors on one of these reports, but you're also doing your dissertation on these topics. So what does research tell us about digital equity through the lens of student use and outcomes? If you think about the digital divide as a series of levels, kind of how what John was talking about before, um, access and use are frequently thought of as coming after um, access. So access is extremely important, as obviously we've all figured out after the pandemic, we are not as good with access as we thought we were. And this use and outcomes is really important because how students use digital tools and how teachers are using them with their students impacts the outcomes for students. And and this includes not just in-school uses, but also how students are using technology outside of schools. So like Matt was talking about, and Andrew, uh, kids really are doing a lot of content creation outside of schools. And honestly, they're usually a lot better at it than than, uh, teachers and educators who maybe tend to be older than the students. And so I don't know if it's an age thing, but, you know, the kids are really great at that. And we haven't really capitalized on those skills, um, I think, like we could. And just like in all learning, the goal of technology is for students to use it for higher order tasks, like creating and collaborating and critical thinking, not just for skill and drill games or entertainment. Um, You know, like when I was in school way back in the 80s, um, you know, we had like the Oregon Trail, which I guess was had some problem solving in it. But, you know, number crunchers, which was basically being on the computer to look at, you know, learning math facts. But just like with math or reading, the goal with technology is not for students to just memorize facts or sight words, but to move beyond those basic skills and apply them to become reflective readers and critical thinkers and mathematical thinkers or historical thinkers. And unfortunately, like much of education, the research shows that in general, students who are white or Asian, those taking advanced classes, those who are in higher socioeconomic schools or come from higher SES backgrounds are more likely to be using digital tools for higher order tasks in school than for skill and drill. And conversely, we see in the research that in school buildings, the students who come from lower incomes have special needs, are Black, Latinx, or Native Americans typically don't have the same opportunities to use technology for completing these higher level tasks, but that doesn't have to be the case. Um, Research also finds that when students typically referred to as marginalized or at risk are offered the same opportunities to use powerful technology, they have similar outcomes to other students and they really are using it in very empowering ways. And then use impacts outcomes. So the research also shows that students who are engaged with technology in higher value ways also have higher outcomes with regard to test results um, and also tend to pursue more technological careers and pursuits in STEM fields. I know there was another Merck study that talked about, you know, who has access to advanced placement courses. And that kind of relates to technology. A lot of the technology is often found in those advanced placement courses. And if we have students who are not having the opportunity to take those courses, then they're you know, also losing the opportunity to um, work with that technology. Uh, And and that's important because all educators want to make sure we're offering the same opportunities for our students. 
I mean, nobody goes into education thinking, I want to do the best for this certain population of my students, but I'm not really concerned about this other population. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important for schools as we begin to try and address these inequities to make sure that students have the tools they need at home and that also teachers are supported with ongoing professional development opportunities, mm -hmm. as well as the technology support personnel and infrastructure uh, that they need. And I imagine this must be pretty fascinating on your end because you're not only uh, really engaging with this research, but you're also, like you mentioned, a school librarian for decades now, providing access to this kind of technology for students and being mindful of how they're actually using it. So how does this resonate with your work as a school librarian in King William? So what I've seen in my 20 plus years as a librarian is some of the addition of instructional technology personnel, such as uh, varying names, sometimes we call them I think in the beginning, they were instructional technology resource teachers and now uh, in technology innovators, all kinds of different names. But that's been a real game changer, I think. When I started as a librarian 22 years ago, librarians were often the leaders in the schools trying to support teachers and students integrate with integrating technology. But librarians have so many other responsibilities that having dedicated technology positions like ITRTs and innovators who aren't charged with technology troubleshooting, their job really is to help teachers integrate technology. I think that's been a real game changer. It's opened a lot of opportunities for students and teachers to use technology. Um, and in, in my county, like our ITRTs are phenomenal. And so is every ITRT I've ever met at a conference or, you know, working with them at VCU. And so it's, I think that's a really important, important aspect is that, you know, teachers have a lot of jobs and they might not necessarily be the most, the best with technology. And so it's really important that we continue to support them. Like Matt was saying, and like John was saying about, you know, we put all this effort into, into professional development when we roll out these programs, but really that professional development needs to be there. And then the support personnel needs to be there to help teachers. I mean, it's really frustrating as a teacher when you buy into this technology thing that your district has been telling you to use and you design this whole lesson and you try to use it and your internet's not working and or you can't log into the program that you're trying to use and you're in front of 27 year olds and you know you you feel not that smart at that point and so um, I think that's that's kind of an important thing is the professional development the infrastructure and the personnel to support teachers can you define what the ITRT acronym is for? So that that's probably a better question for Matt, actually. But ITRT is um, Instructional Resource Technology. Um, so sometimes it's ITRC, like coordinator. Um, but it, it started off, it was Instructional Technology Resource Teachers, I think. Um, and several years ago, I don't, I guess maybe maybe a decade ago almost now. I know the state of Virginia put funding in place for that. And so that was a big push in the schools to, to have dedicated ITRTs outside of your support personnel who were charged with making sure the internet was working and the device right. was working. Their job was really more to support teachers and students. Yeah. So more of a 
pedagogical role than than just an IT person. Gotcha. Yep. And in fact, it was a um, a superintendent's memo over a decade ago that said that every school division had to employ like one ITRT per thousand students or something like that. And it it wasn't codified into law. It was just a superintendent's memo, and most divisions did that. But over time, as Joy and Matt could probably tell you, that position has morphed. The state was very clear that that person was supposed to be, as Joy said, kind of a pedagogical support person and doing professional development. But uh, as one of my former dissertation advisees found, more often than not, they were fixing printers and rebooting computers, which is not what they were supposed to be doing. And then further down the road, a lot of those ITRT positions were changed into data folks. They became folks who would kind of crunch the test score numbers and produce data that teachers could work with. So hmm. it wasn't, because it wasn't codified into law, that position has kind of changed and school divisions have reconfigured that position over time. It's really interesting. I feel like we've worked with several ITRTs on different um, studies or they've been supportive at the Merck conference in the past. And it, it, at this point, it kind of feels like a, a given that they exist in school. So hearing that the history of them is really helpful. Um, and John, thinking about how this idea of use and outcomes with digital equity is sort of emergent. How does this represent maybe a departure from how research has traditionally looked at digital equity? Yeah, so, you know, as I said earlier, I, I've been I've been in this ed tech research game for a couple of decades by now. I mean, it's weird that I started at age 12, but I, I have been <laughs> doing this for a couple of decades. And, you know, in the earliest days, I remember reading big report that education week would come out with those quality counts reports and they would look at you know we're down to 2.4 computers per student and that was sort of the, the extent of the research around digital equity and we've we've come a long way from there and joy did a great job of kind of summarizing a lot of the things that we know but there's still a lot of uh, from my perspective a lot of kind of number crunching and even you know my own dissertation looked at that a bunch of years ago and you know, I was able to look at things like you know, the vast majority of the variance in computer use is within schools and not between schools. So, you know, we have these pockets of innovation and teachers who are really kind of high flyers, but they're, they're just pockets within schools. And so the, the differences are in school. You know, you have this high flying, within any school, you'll have the sort of high flying teachers and the, you know, the more Luddite teachers. You don't tend to see like this school is really high tech versus this school. Um, and that, that's important work. But for me, what, what's most exciting these days is reading a lot of, you know, sort of the naturalistic research or the qualitative research. And I know this warms your heart, David, because you teach that class. And <laughs> Joy, I'm, I'm really looking forward to your dissertation work because it's going to get at this stuff. But for me, you know, we can kind of squint at the numbers all day long and, and say like, you know, this percentage of these kids were doing this amount of work on computers, but it's the, it's the kind of stories and narrative that are emerging in some of the more recent literature that are really, really powerful. And so I hope we continue to see more of that. I hope we folks who are looking at what has happened with technology in schools during the pandemic really dig into the, the stories of the families that have struggled, um, because I think those, those stories are are powerful and likely to impact policy more than just number crunching. Right, absolutely. And Matt, thinking back on your experiences in Goochland, so at the division level, 
what have you noticed about how technology is getting integrated into to student learning and thinking about the last year and a half, what have been some of the biggest challenges and successes in Goochland? So I really do feel in everything that we're, we're doing right now, where we always remind teachers and ourselves to just think about the student experience, no matter what you're using. So we are piloting a new LMS, which, you know, seems, oh, sorry, learning management system, just in case, but we, we love our acronyms in education. So with that, it's kind of simple because our teachers have been using an LMS for 10 years now, and we could just kind of learn the ins and outs of the new one and then just roll it out. But we're being very careful. So I've been very careful in working with the coaches and the teachers and the coaches have been very careful and working with teachers to say, all right, now how can we use leverage this tool to create a better student experience than what we did yesterday? Or, and this is just with the tool that, you know, we, we've talked about creation so much on this, this episode, which is great. And this LM, an LMS isn't really what you think of when you think of creation. But then if you start thinking about that with everything, okay, how can I maximize the student learning experience with this tool? And then how does that spread to every tool that I use? That's, that's one thing that we've been very careful to make sure that we've, we've been pushing um, when we work with teachers and everything. And I do think that, that the biggest challenges over the past year and a half for Goochland, it's a lot of what has been said. It was, it was that access, but not to devices. We had that access to devices, but it was the access to internet. We you know we're small school division. We have 2,600 kids. We deployed over 600 hotspots. And even for those students that could use those, it was exactly like Andrew said, it didn't provide the experience that maybe a kid in the, the eastern part of the county who has high-speed internet was, was experiencing. That was a big challenge. But it was really, it was also another side of that was that, that use case. So how, how do we provide professional development to show teachers that using these tools in a creative, productive way is beneficial to students? when we can't sit in the same room, when we're looking at each other through a computer and we're you know, talking at them for an hour, telling them not to do that to kids. So we had to re- kind of rethink professional learning in that sense too. We also don't wanna just put them in a course on our LMS and just say, you know, go through this and then you'll get a certificate and you're good to go because we don't want teachers to do that in their classroom either. So um, rethinking of how we model what high quality instruction could look like using these tools. I really think that the future of of digital learning in our school division is focused on this. How do we use these tools to create or provide a, a new experience for kids or just amplify student voice and agency? How do we put these tools in a, a student's hand and have them just fly with it? And not only that, but how do they teach their the kid next to them and then impact their whole class. I was lucky enough to do some some virtual reality work with teachers and the experiences that they had before working with me was, yeah, we put it on and we looked at the heart, which was really cool, you know, the human heart. We went inside of it, we saw this stuff, which is really cool. But then 
I, when I was like, okay, well, we're going to use this to, to make something. We're going to use this to create a 3D model of something that you teach in your classroom. They were, they were like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know. And then a couple of them were like, oh, I don't want to, I can't do this. I can't, I can't do this in my classroom. There's just too much. By the end of it, they were like, okay, who do we, who do we write a check to? Let's figure this out. Or I might not be ready to have my students do this, but I do want to try it as a teacher and create engaging things for maybe, because right now we're in this time where maybe students might have to quarantine or teachers might have to quarantine. So how do we kind of quickly pivot? And when we were going through this, they were like, oh, I could create videos using virtual reality and then send them to my students. And that would be a great way for them to catch up on things or review concepts. And these were teachers that went into this things like basically saying, I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. So mm -hmm. just giving them the opportunity to see the potential of these tools and kind of see where their mind goes, I think is, is where we're headed right now, but in the, in the future doing this thing for students. So just unlocking that potential with these tools. Yeah. And I know the, um, the future, at least in the immediate term is somewhat un uncertain because COVID is such a, a, a shifting threat to our society and schools for sure. But it sounds like we've also learned a lot of positive things over the last year and a half that are able to incorporate moving forward. Um, and the virtual reality work that you do in Google is so cool, Matt. And as someone who's on your dissertation committee, I'm still hoping that you'll defend that over virtual reality and that you'll find a way to do that. So let us know. Uh, but Joy, <laughs> thinking about the King William County, how does this resonate with your work, what Matt was just saying? Uh, well, it's it's interesting. King William and Goochland have very similar demographics. Uh, we're very similar ge geographically. So I would echo a lot of what um, Matt is is saying. One thing I think that's come out of this pandemic, it's really pushed educators to use technology in ways that they never have before. And we've also learned a lot about what doesn't work with technology, such as Zoom meetings for seven hours. Um, and this, this last year and a half has shown us that technology can be so powerful, but to be effective, especially for students, it needs to be approached with the same principles of good teaching and learning that we use for all content areas. Um, so a well-planned and thought out lesson that helps you achieve your objectives is just as important with technology as it is for any other you know, curricular subject. So one thing that I've noticed over many of the years is technology often tends to be one of two things. It either tends to be an add-on, basically a substitution. So, you know, I'm using, instead of having my kids write something on paper, I'm just going to have them type it in Word. Um, or the technology is the focus of the lesson, and so they're learning the technology. And really, the goal as we move forward needs to be really well thought out and planned so that you're teaching, for example, this reading concept using technology. So you're not just teaching the technology. You're not just having them use technology in place of writing, but you're actually using the writing or the, the technology to teach the content. So um, kind of like what we're doing with this podcast, you know, we're, we're using the technology to get our, our point across and get this information out there. We're collaborating via Zoom. We're, you know, creating content that teachers 
and educators can hopefully use. And that's kind of, I think, the biggest thing. I'm hopeful that one thing we've learned is how powerful technology can be, but that it also needs to be intentional and supporting what we really want the students to learn. So I just love that because just, you know, reflecting on my time attempting to help, hopefully I did, uh, teachers integrate technology, they, we could do so many activities, you know, I could lead PDs, I could model in the classroom, we could meet, we could brainstorm, and then COVID happened. And they were like, oh, now that I've done it, now I know how to use it. And I feel like sometimes we forget that when mm-hmm. we design lessons for students, we, we forget that you know, we have to give them a chance to actually use these tools in a productive way or else it's not gonna connect. They're not gonna know how to use this and not only use it in this situation, but also apply it to another one. I, so I just love what you said, Joy. I just wanted to, if I was with you, I'd give, give you a high five. <laughs> this is what air fives are for. <laughs> um, well, I mean, building off of what Matt and Joy just said, uh, for this for everybody, what what can we, like based on our discussion today, how can we enact this more comprehensive vision of digital equity in the new era? So I'll, I'll start and I'll say that I certainly hope folks read this, these reports because in, in the reports we, we document uh, some of what what can happen, some of what some of what has happened, and some of what can happen, and it has to happen uh, locally, at the state level, and the federal level. All levels of government have a role to play in enacting a, a vision of digital equity, and, and we we've seen good things happen at all those levels. You know, the as I mentioned earlier, the sc- local school divisions bent over backwards to make sure kids had access at the beginning of the pandemic. The State has a you know significant broadband effort underway. Um, that's a huge uh, policy undertaking, and the federal government too. I mean, the E-rate program has been around for a long time, and that's been a, a huge um, boon to a lot of school districts, especially kind of low-income and rural school districts. So we need we need more of that, and and more on top of that from various levels of government. And I also want to. There's a particular point in the report the conclusion to the access report, which claims that we, we've, we're, we've been discussing and talking about digital equity in education as a policy kind of problem. And it is, but there's another way to, to think about it, which is digital equity, not so much as a problem, as a, a symptom of a larger problem. And uh, there's a couple of quotes from an article by uh, Bach, Wolfson, and Crowell, and I just wanted to read one of them where, where they, they argue that uh, the digital divide is not the problem. They say, quote, rather it is a symptom of social and economic marginalization that has been exacerbated by policies and practices that further disenfranchise poor and working people. Initiatives that's, that aspire to lift people out of poverty by providing them broadband access and training in digital literacy fail because they misunderstand the nature of poverty today by aiming to solve a symptom of a much larger and more complicated problem rather than the problem itself. And so I think that that's the end of the quote. And I think that's um, really important to think about. You know, we can, uh, we, ha- we have a tendency in this country and in, in schooling to kind of throw technology at problems. And Evgeny Morozov wrote a book about what he called technological solutionism. Um, and 
it, it is important. Anyone who works in schools knows it's important for kids to have access to these technologies, but, but the, the disparities that we see are, are problematic because they're not, they're not by choice. You know, we, we haven't, it's not like people in rural communities have chosen not to buy the latest technologies and, and uh, surround themselves with three computing devices per family member. Um, it's, a, it's a poverty issue. And so we need to really tackle some of those tougher, bigger policy issues that are at the root of this, this, what the quote suggests is a, a, a symptom as much as a problem. Andrew, I see you nodding a lot. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's about shifting a little bit of a paradigm. And I was kind of thinking back to what John said about some teachers being really um, enthusiastic about bringing technology in and others being, <laughs> I think he used a lot of like, just more hesitant to kind of open up in some with something they're uncomfortable with. And coming from thinking a lot about multilingual learners and students coming into a classroom with, you know, a language, you know, an oral language, but also with digital familiarity that teachers might not have. And so it's about like it makes, I think as educators, we get a little uncomfortable when we're confronted with something that we didn't bring into the class that we don't feel like we can we can grasp or explain fully ourselves so that I think an instinct is to is to kind of keep that out of the classroom push that out so I think we have to think about ways that a strengths-based approach and how we can match the strengths that kids already bring to the class with the challenges that that we want them to tackle in their education journey so you know I, I I'm agreeing a lot with looking at not necessarily trying to fix symptoms and, and trying to approach the whole situation as opposed to you, you know, you need a laptop or you need to learn English. It should be, how can I set you up to be successful on the whole? So I think just connecting just a holistic approach and it's kind of that really looking at that third dimension back to like our, our foundation for this, for equity of, how do these more sort of group dynamics play into things and on a, on a larger scale, as opposed to like, you know, this individual student, this individual family, how are we looking at those systematic, like perpetual type of things? How are we shifting the way we handle those? Matt, what do you think? I love that idea of strengths-based. I just feel like if that's not the way you approach things as an educator, it makes life really hard. And just listening to everybody speak before me, what a, what a cool, diverse, you know, set of ideas, because I had a feeling that John was going to talk about policy, and then I want to talk about teacher ed. So I think just focusing on, or I think focusing on um, providing experiences for teachers and people going through teacher prep programs is incredibly important, because if they don't see the value in using these, then we could have the access to every single tool in, in the world and teachers can just say no, because, you know, that's a little bit of the beauty of being a teacher, you know, in your classroom, does you, you're designing learning experiences. And if you think you can't do it, like Andrew said, or you don't want to do it, then you're not going to. So I think we need to help people realize that, 
you don't you don't need to be the master of this tool. You can learn it right alongside your students. That's really uncomfortable for a lot of people. It's something that when I taught third grade, I would say, I don't know how to use this. Let's figure it out. Boom. And then they taught me how to do everything. And then they got me a job as an ITRT. So it was great. I had the best, best coaches of it was like 28 year olds. But I think also having a little bit of experience teaching the ed tech class at VCU, it was interesting to hear some of the, the students in that class say, oh, technology is not my thing. I don't know how to do any of this stuff. And they had a hard time in the beginning with the class. And I, I mean, I thought the class was really fun. We had a like a, a, a maker kind of framework we were working with. So, you know, we were learning a lot, but we were also playing a lot and learning through that play. And it was it was a little bit tricky at first for some of these these new soon to be teachers. So I think just giving as many experiences as we can to current teachers, studying teachers, um, just to show them the potential and show them that if you don't just look at the the tool, an iPad, a computer, whatever, as you know, this is where they type their papers, or this is where they do reflex math. This is a tool just like pencil or a paintbrush. They can use this tool in that way too. And it may be a little bit uncomfortable, but that's when you know it's worth it, you know? I think, I, and there's, like John said, in those reports, there's direct steps that each, you know, depending on your role, that you can work towards to help combat this digital inequity. And I agree. I hope a lot of people read it. I'll be sharing it far and wide. Joy, you get last word. I'd like to echo kind of what Matt was talking about. I really think teachers are the key. Um, I actually wrote a paper about technology and teacher ed, and it's very lacking. Uh, most teacher prep programs, teachers take one technology class, like the one that Matt was teaching, and it's, you know, using technology for education. And I think in order to really affect change, teacher prep programs are going to have to, um, you know, there's a lot of classes teachers have to take, and and they can't just add three or four technology classes. So they're really going to have to focus on integrating technology into that reading content class or that, you know, science content class. So I think that's kind of kind of one factor. And the other thing is, I think we really need to let teachers know that it's okay that your kids know more about this than you do. Kind of echoing what Matt was saying, when I work with my kids, you know, coding is not something that I grew up doing. It's not something that comes naturally to me. And so, you know, we'll do coding and I'll work through the program like any good teacher would. You know, I do the program before I show it to the students. But I don't have, you know, days to work. I'm not like the kids. I'm not going to get absorbed in it and work on this for, you know, eight hours straight. And so they'll, they're going to eventually get to a point in the program and they're like, you know, Miss Washington, um, I don't know how to do this. And I'm, and I have to say, I didn't get that far. You got further than I did. We're going to have to figure this out together. You know, why don't you teach me or uh, I tell the kids a lot, you know, don't ask me because I'm not going to know the answer go ask one of your peers because they're the ones, someone else in this room is going to know how to do it. And it's not going to be me because I'm old and I don't know as much as you guys. So I think that's, but, but it's uncomfortable for teachers to admit that they don't know something because we're supposed to be the experts. So I think we really need to, to help teachers understand 
it's okay not to know everything. You know, it's okay to let your students lead the way and also not be afraid. You know, there's a lot of fear with, but what if I let them on YouTube and they find a video that's inappropriate? You know, what if, so we talk about it. You know, I say, if you find something that makes you uncomfortable, exit out of it, just close it. That's, that's the biggest thing. You can just close it and it's gone. You know, raise your hand, let me know, ask a question. Um, you know, if you're at home, ask your parents. And so, you know, that's, we just need to let, let teachers have some, some grace. That's, that's my word for the year with all this pandemic grace. Mm -hmm. Um, So just, you know, let teachers know to have some grace and we're all learning this together and let the kids help you out. Yeah. And David, I know we're we're coming to an end, but I I just want to chime in and, and echo what Joy and Matt said about kind of reform around teacher prep programs and how they can uh, integrate technology more into their programs as models for what teachers can do in their classrooms. Uh, but I don't want to let my colleagues off the hook either. Uh, we have work to do in the world of education leadership as we prepare future leaders, future principals and future superintendents. We owe it to them to help them bring their schools and districts to the, to the next level. It's, it has been the case for many, many years that they're like a handful of professors of education leadership in this country who study and think about technology on a regular basis. And that's, that's kind of a sad state of affairs. Um, and that means that we're not changing our curriculum. So we have to think about our, our schools of education more broadly and how they prepare teachers and school leaders for the, the world that we live in now. Right. And we've learned so much over the last year and a half in the higher ed and K-12 space. And we really hope that these two reports that came out on digital equity provide some really helpful resources for um, folks in both realms to be able to capitalize on that learning. Um, And we're going to need to leave that there for now. But if you want to continue this conversation, we hope that you will join us for our 2021 Merck conference on Friday, October 22nd on the Hopin.2 online platform. Tickets are available now and there are special rates for VCU and Merck school divisions. You can register on our website at merck.soe.bcu.edu slash conference. That's merc.soe.bcu.edu slash conference. While you are there, you can check out Merck projects and reports on prominent issues in public education and sign up for our stakeholder email listserv to stay up to date on our latest research and reports. Uh, you can access these two Merck reports on, the, on digital equity through the lens of access, use, and outcomes on our website as well by clicking on the reports tab. Um, you can also listen to other episodes from this series and subscribe to Abstract wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the Merck website. Our thanks as always to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck and to all of our partner school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, and Richmond Public Schools. Thanks today to John, Joy, Andrew, and Matt for sharing their perspective. And of course, thanks as always to you for joining our conversation. We hope that you will share this episode with anyone who you think would find it interesting or helpful. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon.